Why don't I do this? Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our study this evening. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your kindness in Christ to us. Lord, that you would rescue us sinners who deserve nothing but your wrath. And not only that, have you made us your sons, but that you have disclosed yourself to us. And so, as we come to look at a portion of your word this evening, we ask that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, cause us to learn of you, the one, in, the one whom we serve, in whom we have fellowship and life and light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles in our Wednesday night study. We've been walking through this Psalm 119, and we're going to return there again this evening to another stanza, the Ion stanza, which you'll find in verses 121 to 128, a section that I've titled, In Service of the Sovereign. Is this, I don't know if, uh, there we go. in service of the sovereign. Let's read just this paragraph, this eight verses together right from the outset, and then we'll try to make sense of it here. The psalmist picks up here in the psalm, and he writes this, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. I deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they've broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Now, of course, as we've been studying through this psalm, you know, we've titled the entire psalm, The Glory of God's Word. And so, really, in every one of these stanzas that we've covered Something of the glory of God's Word shines through, and and the same is true here. There are a lot of, again, things that are similar and repeated, just to point you to some of them. One that is all the different ways in which uh, the psalmist refers to God's Word here. You know them well, verse 121, judgments or justice. Uh, verse 123, word, statutes in verse 124, testimonies, 125, law, commandments, precepts. So this stanza is no different than the other stanzas in this, that it's, there is also this focus upon God's word. That remains constant in this psalm. And, and you'll also notice in this particular stanza that the setting and the situation for the psalmist hasn't changed. And what is that? You remember? What is his circumstance? You can interact with me here a bit. Is it good? Is it comfortable? 
No, it's, it's one of suffering. It's one of persecution. And so that remains the same here as well. Historically, um, not just thematically, but, but historically, suffering is still the context of the psalmist here. You see that especially in the first three verses. He speaks of those who oppress him, and, his, and, and he speaks of his longing for deliverance. In other words, this psalm is not theoretical or clinical in its praise of God's Word. It is tested in the midst of a fiery trial. One one writer describes it as loyalty under terrible pressure. But but then another thing that's just similar to what we've already seen, just to remind you, is that even structurally and grammatically, this stanza, like the rest of the stanzas in this acrostic poem, uh, as you might expect, the first word of every verse here begins then with this Hebrew letter ayin, which is the stanza that we're in. Those are the elements that you've seen before, uh, that we're familiar with. But we've also tried, if you remember, as we've walked through this, we've also tried each week to show you that each individual stanza has its own unique contribution and emphasis and lesson. And so, particular to this stanza is an emphasis on being God's servant and doing God's will in the midst of our suffering. That's what we're going to be studying this evening. In fact, there are two really workhorse terms in this particular stanza that both begin with the Hebrew letter ayin that prove to us this emphasis and theme. And I want to show this to you here in one of these slides. The first significant word of this stanza is the term ebed, which means servant or slave. I mean, the, 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 the name, uh, just as the name abednego, abednego is, means the slave or servant of Nebo. This word, you'll notice it three times. I've underlined and bolded it there on that slide for you. It's repeated in this stanza. It's the most frequent uh, way, or or it's the most frequent occurrence of this in in just in one stanza of this whole psalm. So here, the, the psalmist primarily in this section sees himself, identifies himself, as God's servant, and that is how he appeals to the Lord in this particular stanza. That's the emphasis here. And according to one commentator, an appeal to this kind of servant-master relationship is used to claim Yahweh's patronage. And that's the focus this, this evening, the psalmist as God's servant. You see, in the days of the psalmist in ancient Israel, uh, this kind of slavery and servitude, you know, was, was not automatically a bad thing. Um, for such a relationship to, to be a blessing or a curse was really dependent on the type of master that you had. And so, uh, Brian Borgman summarizes it well here when he says this, to be God's servant is a high privilege. 
To be his servant is to depend on him for everything. It is to be committed to following his loving rules and orders as our covenant master. It is to have comfort in knowing that we are his and he is for us. He is my provider, my protector, my master, and my teacher. He has bound himself to me. That's, that's how the psalmist sees himself and his relationship to the Lord in this particular stanza. But the second word, there's a second workhorse term that you can see there that I've highlighted in yellow, and it's the word asa. It, 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 it shows up again three times as well, and it can be translated to do, as in verse 121 there, or to deal verse 124, or to act, 126. Those are all actually the same exact Hebrew term. And this, this is a verb of action. It's a verb of accomplishment. It's a verb of work. In other words, think about this. There is an activity and proactivity assumed in this particular stanza that leans us, as we read it, towards doing something or at least seeing something done. In fact, inherent even in that first word for servant is also this idea and picture of doing work. So this is a very active stanza in one sense. The, the, in fact, the when you put these two terms together then, we can conclude that this stanza is all about, as I said earlier, being God's servant and doing God's will in the midst of suffering. Hence the title, In Service of the Sovereign. And so tonight we're going to learn, listen, from our psalmist, listen, what it looks like to be a faithful servant of God even in the midst of great suffering. Do you want that? And Christian, you are, you are a slave of Christ. Did you know that? You, you, the Bible identifies you as a, a servant of God. If you're a Christian, this is who you are. And so we ought to be concerned about being a faithful servant of God. We ought to be concerned tonight about how we can serve the Lord diligently, faithfully, fervently, even through difficult times. Do you want that? Then we must pay attention to what the psalmist teaches us here. But um, let, let me make just a, a few brief more comments uh, about the structure here. Um, I just find this interesting, so you have to put up with it. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that the text I know, divides up into three Parts based on those three occurrences of that word asa, right? That to do word group. So you'll see that 121 through 123, 124 and 125 together, and then that last three verses together. And consider the progression of these action verbs with me for a moment, okay? Just consider them. The first line of each of those three sections, the progression and the movement here from one down to three on the left side there, seems to be this. I have done uprightly towards my enemies. Now, God, you do graciously to me. 
And Lord, it is time to do something. That's the progression. And notice also how the first section you see in red focuses on the psalmist's relationship with his enemies, while the second section in green uh, focuses on the psalmist's relationship with God and his word. And then that third section recaps both of those two relationships. In 126, on the psalmist's enemies, and 127 and 128, back on God and his word. So, I just think that's neat. And I like drawing circles and squares and stuff on PowerPoint. So, um, so pulling, pulling all of these observations together, here's your outline for tonight. Okay? In this stanza, we're going to note three marks of a faithful, suffering servant of Yahweh. Three marks, and you can see them right there. A faithful, suffering servant waits for God. A faithful, suffering servant draws near to God. The faithful, suffering servant is zealous for God. And we'll flesh these out as we walk through it. Okay, make sense so far? Do you want to faithfully, Christian, do you want to faithfully serve the Lord even when you might suffer for it? That's the question tonight. Well, let's learn from our psalmist how. So first, first, when suffering injustice, notice a faithful servant of the Lord waits for God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on, I thought you said early in the introduction, that there's a lot of doing and acting and working in this part of the psalm, in this particular stanza. But now you're saying faithful service doesn't, it just means waiting? Yes. But notice how this kind of waiting, we'll see here in a moment, is not passive. It's quite active. You see, biblical waiting, as we see here, does not mean inactivity. And so notice, first, verse 121 here, waiting for God means waiting with a clean conscience. Notice what the psalmist says here. Verse 121, I've done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. You see, with this opening verse, the psalmist is not claiming perfection or sinlessness here, so we're not to be confused. That's not what he means by I've done justice and righteousness. As, as much as he's, he's making a comment about he, how he strove to conduct himself towards his fellow man and even towards his enemies. His whole point, in other words, here is that he had treated everyone in all of his relationships, horizontal relationships, with justice, integrity, and righteousness, including those who were out to get him, including his oppressors. In other words, what we find here is that this man's suffering was, it was truly unjust. It was unprovoked, in other words, because he'd done no wrong to his oppressors to earn their persecution and opposition. Therefore, his appeal to God here 
uh, not to leave him to his oppressors is made on the basis of this fact that he had done no wrong to his neighbor. You see, the psalmist did everything in his power to have a clear and clean conscience in all of his relationships. This is the same principle that we find throughout uh, 1 Peter. If, if you're in the first hour Sundays of class, you've been studying that. We've been studying that together. But just listen to some of these same sort of principles come out in 1 Peter in terms of suffering injustice at the hands of wicked men. Howard do that. He, Peter says, 1 Peter 3 verse 16, and keep a good conscience. Why? So that in a thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 1 Peter 2 verse 19 and 20, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, Listen, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And he'll go on to say, for what credit is there if when you sin are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You see, if the psalmist had not kept a clean conscience and had not treated others, including his enemies, with justice and righteousness, he wouldn't have obtained the favor of God or God's blessing. First uh, Peter 4, last one, verses 15 and 16, Peter will say, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. You see, what we learn here from the psalmist is that waiting on God, waiting for God, doesn't mean we do nothing in the meantime. It's still hard work. And for him, first here, it was the hard work of keeping a clear conscience in how he treated others with justice and righteousness, even when they were out to hurt him. Is that what you do as you wait for the Lord to act and to work in your circumstances, Christian? Spurgeon says, of course, a course of upright conduct is one which gives us boldness in appealing to the great judge for deliverance from the injustice of others. It is so important, Christians, that you maintain a clean and clear conscience when you suffer so that you could know that your suffering is not because you're just a jerk and, and insensitive and out offending everyone for no good reason. <laughs> Therefore, notice, having dealt this way in all his horizontal relationships, notice the second line here, the psalmist here could plead with integrity for God to come to his aid. By the way, think about this with me for a moment. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist doesn't just take matters into his own hands here even though, listen, you know your own heart, right? I know mine. Even though he clearly has what we would call the moral high ground. What, what does your heart tend to do when that's the case? Right? You tend to justify your position and to go around then enacting judgment on others for wronging you because after all, you didn't do anything to earn their behavior. You see, the temptation 
for us when we're right is to execute our own justice, isn't it? But isn't it interesting here? That's not what the psalmist does. He waits. Yes, he works to, he works to keep a clean conscience before others, but then he waits. His activity is elsewhere. It's in his own heart and his own life and conduct. But when it comes to his own defense, he waits. He trusts. He looks to God. Notice his request here is, Lord, don't leave me behind. Don't, don't, Don't put me down for my enemies to get me. The verb actually has this idea of causing something to be put down in a resting position. In other words, it was used literally of laying something down after carrying it. And that's a, what, what a picture, isn't that? It, it is that of the psalmist's complete dependence on God to continue carrying him through. In relation to his enemies, there's nothing he can do. He's like this helpless, paralyzed victim waiting for God to carry him to safety. He's like my cat, <laughs> a ragdoll cat. You pick her up? And she just goes limp. And the psalmist says, don't put me down and leave me there for my enemies to get me. You see, a faithful servant of God must wait for God with a clean conscience. Listen, we do have a task as we wait, but our task as servants is not to fight for ourselves, but rather it is to live holy lives leaving the matter of our defense to the Lord. That's what we see exemplified here. But what is the psalmist waiting specifically for God to do? Notice, secondly, under this same heading, he's waiting for God to act on his behalf. Notice verse 122. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. Now, this language is not something that we commonly use today. Uh, The verb here, to be surety, it it does have rich imagery behind it that I think we can understand. It's related to this uh, Greek term uh, that that really means uh, down payment or a guarantee of sorts that you know what that's like. No, No matter, it's this guarantee, it's the wedding ring, right? It's the commitment, it's the investment, it's the I'm putting this, I'm giving you this as a guarantee that I am good for what I'm saying I'm coming to do. It's a guarantee of sorts that no matter what happens, the cost will be paid, even if it means someone else will pay it for us on our behalf. It is a legal and financial word that means to really take responsibility for another. Uh, Alexander writes this, it means not merely take me under thy protection, but become answerable for me. Stand between me and those who, under any pretext, even of legal right, may seek to oppress me. The word you would know, uh, probably you'd be familiar if you've read Genesis um, 43 recently uh, in Joseph and that whole Uh, story with his brothers, the word is used by Judah 
who offered to stand in the place of Benjamin, the youngest, you remember, before his father Jacob in Genesis 43, 9. Listen to the language. It just helps us understand this word. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. That's the idea. It's the idea of taking responsibility, personal responsibility, on someone else's behalf for their welfare. And so, Proverbs 11.15 warns us against doing this for someone that we don't know well enough, right? He who's a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, right? If you agree to um, back someone else's debt and that person is unreliable, the point is that's going to fall on you. And so here, the psalmist is requesting for God to do this for him. And it's captured, I love what Spurgeon says here. We're going to quote him a lot tonight. It's captured by Spurgeon when he says this, Take up my interests and weave them with thine own and stand for me as my master undertake thy servant's cause and represent me before the faces of haughty men. The Lord will undertake the cause of his servants and fight their battles against the proud. Listen, this is what the psalmist is waiting for God to do. He's waiting for God to act on his behalf. Our waiting is not just, in other words, keeping a clear conscience, but also pleading with God to take up our cause as his own. For him to act on our behalf and for our good. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for him to act. See, this, there's another side to this, though. You know what that means? It's refusing to take up our own cause and case. This means refraining. You notice it's so deliberate here of the psalmist. It's refraining from championing our own cause. And you say, look, the psalmist said, look, you, you're, you've done justice and righteousness. Why don't you enact those things? And he, and he deliberately doesn't. He's waiting for God to act on his behalf. You see, the, the faithful servant doesn't act as the master. That's his whole point. The faithful servant is less about serving himself and making himself comfortable than he is about holding out for his master's agenda. And if that means patience and the timing of the master, then that's what it means. Listen, I can't help but think of this principle, Romans 12, 19. Remember, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, look, this is what it means in 1 Peter 3.15 to sanctify Christ. Listen to what it says, as Lord in your hearts. He's Lord. He's Master. We make Him ruler and master, and we are His slaves. It means recognizing that we serve Him and His timing and His purposes. Our hope is in Him 
And so we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right and let him act on our behalf however and whenever he so chooses. A faithful servant waits for God to act on his behalf, but not only that, a faithful servant also waits for God, notice lastly, with intense longing. You see, this is not just um, an attitude of resignation, okay, fine, fine. You just do whatever you want, God. (laughs) Notice the attitude here. Verse 123, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. This is the attentive waiting of a faithful servant. In other words, this, this kind of waiting is, notice the language here, it's exhausting because it is the waiting of someone who's actively searching and longing and looking for an answer to come from his God. The imagery here, as Christopher Ashe observes, is this, how vividly the eye expresses the emotions of the soul. This man's eye is weak, dim, and full of tears as he longs for God's rescue. You see, the picture here is the straining of the embattled soldier's eye who's scanning the hills on the horizon for any sign, just any sign of reinforcements. That's the idea here. I love what Calvin says most, though, here. He writes, although there was no prospect of end to his calamities, and although despair presented itself on every side, listen to this, yet he strove against temptation even to the fainting of his soul. In short, the failing of his eyes indicates perseverance combined with a severe and arduous effort. And it is, I love this contrast that Calvin makes here, it's opposed to the momentary ardor of those who immediately faint if God does not grant their request. That's such a good contrast, isn't it? And although he may conceal, that is God, may conceal from our view, listen, the working of his hand we ought to repose in His bare promises. Keep looking. Keep waiting, Christian, with great longing and anticipation and hope. That is the posture of a faithful servant in the midst of suffering. You see how proactive that is? Is that, That's not passive at all. That's not lazy. That's not resigned. In fact, notice what the psalmist says here, he waits for to the point of exhaustion. It's for your salvation and for your righteous word. Yes, his longing was for deliverance, but it was also, listen, for God's word. I love that. In fact, the argument could be made here due to the parallel grammatical construction that the psalmist actually viewed these two things as one and the same. That salvation was his righteous word. His righteous word was his salvation. And so Spurgeon writes, the psalmist left his reputation entirely in the Lord's hand and was eager to be cleared by the word of the judge rather than by any defense of his own. Do you wait for God like that? Do you wait longingly, patiently, expectantly, hopefully, fervently, Christian, do you see yourself as his servant whose welfare is at his disposal? 
Do you trust him as a sweet master? Or are you tempted in moments of difficulty to take matters into your own hands and act as your own master? Beloved, don't do that. You see, as the Lord's servants, we must acknowledge that we are ultimately at his disposal as our Lord and master. Our cause is bound up with his, and our fate is ultimately in his hands. So, our posture must be that of Psalm 123, verse 2. Listen, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Let that be our posture as we wait. So, summary, this first point, when suffering comes and injustice is perpetrated, a faithful servant of the Lord waits with a clean conscience and intense longing for God to act on his behalf. That's just a sentence pulling all of those points together. But secondly, a faithful servant of the Lord draws near to God, not just waits for God, but also draws near to God. That is the middle two verses there. In these middle two verses, we see the psalmist now longing to be in good standing and close fellowship with his Lord and his God. You see, the change now is from the focus upon his enemies, and now it's between him and the Lord. And here, the servant-master relationship that the psalmist longs for is one of intimate communion and fellowship and knowledge. You see, our relationship to God as Lord is not some cold, distant, professional work relationship like you and your boss. Faithful servants of Yahweh learn to love God as their master, the best master anyone could ever have. Yet I love what Spurgeon says, and it's recorded of his last sermon ever given from the platform of Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said of his Lord Jesus, he's the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. And then this, is this your perspective on your master? His service is life, peace, joy. This is Spurgeon at the end of his life. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so we find this conviction here with the psalmist as well about God as his Lord. It's not this cold and cruel relationship. But notice first he draws near to God then by covenant grace. Look at verse 124. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. You see, you would think that since he just appealed to his own justice and righteousness in verse 121, right, in respect to his enemies, he might have a foot to stand on at least a little bit of ground before God, but no, not at all. Here, 
as the focus shifts off his adversaries and onto his relationship to his God, his only appeal is for divine mercy. But the word for loving kindness is that loaded Old Testament term, right? You have to get in your guttural here, chesed, right? It's, you got to hawk the loogie. <laughs> it's a very difficult word to translate one English idea. It refers to that gracious, loyal, covenant love that God has for His own precious and chosen people. It's a word of relationship. In other words, a psalmist's plea here is ultimately for God to treat him as he's already promised to treat those who belong to him. The psalmist appeals, in other words, to the gracious terms of God's existing covenant with his own people. You see, behind this request then was the psalmist's desire to to simply be in a right and close relationship and covenant relationship with his master. That was his cry. That was his prayer. That was the direction of his movement in the midst of a crisis. Look, good servants move towards their master, not away. And notice what this gracious covenant relationship included. He says on the heels of pleading for divine grace and teach me your statutes. Beloved, what a, what a, think about this. What a grace and privilege to be taught of God, to to learn from Him what it means to live, to be instructed by Him about what we should do. Christian, do you think of God's statutes that way? Have you ever thought of, I mean, just go out there in the world and just say, hey, what do you think of school and going to school to learn rules? (laughs) You know, I think the knee-jerk reaction in our flesh is to say, well, that's, I don't like that. That's not a grace. That's a drudgery. Here, the psalmist is displaying here, look, under this plea and cry for God to be gracious to him is, as a result, for God to teach him, to teach him what to do, how to live. Do you see God's commandments in this light as those gracious gifts from God moving towards you to to instruct you and to disciple you as a teacher would a pupil? Do you think about learning about what God requires as a grace and a gift and a privilege? Listen, if you have the right relationship with Him, you do. Which brings us to our next sub-point here. Notice that Faithful servants of Yahweh draw near to God, not just by covenant relationship or covenant grace, but also through personal knowledge. Look at verse 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding. Another prayer request based on his position and relationship. Give me understanding is his plea that I may know your testimonies. Now, again, the plea here is on the basis of his personal and intimate relationship of belonging to God as as his servant. But now, notice the request is not just to learn what God requires in his statutes, it's, it's actually to understand and to know God himself. 
his testimonies, right? Those things which bear witness of him. That's what the psalmist longs for here. That's what the prayer is for. It's specifically, notice the language here, for God to grant him spiritual perception, which is what this term understanding refers to. It's like the psalmist is asking for eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear. And as a result of that spiritual insight, the psalmist says, he might, and here's the whole point, truly come to know God for who he really is. You know, one theological dictionary says this word for to know here speaks, quote, of a knowledge which is empirical and living, which I love the language here, continually arises from personal encounter. You see what the psalmist is asking for? He's saying, God, I want to be able to see you for who you are so that I might know you experientially and relationally, not just in some contracted covenant, but personally as my Lord and my master and my teacher and my God. You see, that is, the, that is the cry of the true and faithful servant. That is what servants, good and faithful servants, do with their masters when, they, when the pressure comes, when things are difficult. In the midst of severe affliction and persecution, the psalmist's prayer was to draw nearer in relationship to his God and his master and to truly know his Lord. Is that what you want? Is that what you do in your service to Christ? You see, listen, Christians, we serve Jesus because of who He is. We serve Him because of how lovely of a Savior He is. Don't think of service and work for the Lord as just, I got to do these tasks, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to accomplish this, and Look, if we miss this, we miss the relational aspect of what the psalmist is bringing out here, and we are no longer faithful servants of God to just go through the motions in some cold, heartless, contractual relationship. No, we're in a... a, We're in this intimate relationship with our Master and Lord. And so listen, when things get difficult and serving God in this world brings hostility and oppression, this is the only thing that will sustain you and keep you faithful. It is knowing the God whom you serve. So draw near to Him. Draw near to Him. Do you draw near to Him? in those times of difficulty when service is hard? Or do you push away? What is your response typically? So in summary, a faithful servant of the Lord draws near to God by covenant grace and through personal knowledge. In other words, he desires to be in intimate and personal relationship with his Lord and Master whom he serves. But third... Uh, when suffering injustice, the faithful servant of the Lord uh, not only waits for God, 
not only draws near to God, but also is zealous, or we could even say maintains zeal for God. Look at these last three verses. Notice first, he's zealous uh, for God's glory to be vindicated. Look at verse 126. He said, it is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. See here, the, the psalmist boldly declares uh, that it is, it is high time for God to do something. I mean, isn't that bold language? It's time, he declares, Lord. He's looking at his watch. He's looking at his situation. He's seeing the wicked prevail, perhaps. He declares now, it's time, Lord, for you to act. Not simply because, as one writer says, he's in peril, but because God needs to vindicate his own laws, which the arrogant have broken. But look at, look at the language here. The language is careful. You know, he's not directly issuing God a command to do something, nor does he actually spell out what he thinks God should do, so we'd be careful there. He simply here declares it to be an appropriate time or season, which is the word here, for God to show Himself. And that is, that is the cry of the servant to his master, right? This is if the psalmist, as Calvin puts it, is calling upon God to show Himself the maintainer of His own glory. Again, I think Spurgeon captures the sense of this verse well when he writes, the psalmist was a servant, and therefore it was always his time to work, but being oppressed by a sight of man's ungodly behavior, he feels that his master's hand is wanted, and therefore he appeals to him to work against the working of evil. I notice how some translators give a causal sense to the second line here, for or because they have broken your law. In other words, why does the psalmist believe that God should move now? Notice, it's so interesting here. You see, uh, you see, what is it typically for us? God, I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's about time for you to do something. That's not the reason the psalmist gives here. See, what moved the psalmist to appeal to God to do something is not primarily his own injury or suffering, rather it is his zeal for God's glory and name. That is what a true and faithful servant is concerned about, even more than his own situation and circumstance, even more than his own glory and comfort. The reason here for God to move is for God's glory. It's because the God's law is being trampled upon. Uh, the verb here to break in the Old Testament is found most often in reference to breaking God's covenant, violating terms of a relationship. And so, again, Calvin writes, the, our, our zeal, and I think this is so insightful and, and piercing, he says, our zeal disordered when it is disordered, um, 
hang on a second, our zeal, disordered whenever it's moving principle, is a sense of our own personal injuries. Sorry, our zeal, let me read that again, is disordered, in other words, not what it should be, whenever it's moving principle is a sense of our own personal injuries. But here, he says, the prophet's grief proceeded from no other cause than that he could not endure to see the divine law violated. You see, what typically moves us to say enough is enough is when our glory's violated and our rules broken, right? Parents, do you know this? That's the temptation, isn't it? To defend our own glory and our own standards and our own preferences. That wasn't the case for the psalmist. His zeal had a different target. His zeal had a different standard. It was based on the glory of God. It was like Paul walking around the city of Athens being provoked in his spirit because, because of all the idolatry that he saw. Like a faithful servant is zealous primarily for his master's glory above his own comfort. Is that, is that you? When you serve the Lord, are you ever thinking, look, it doesn't matter how comfortable I am in this position. It doesn't matter how difficult this is. You know, every day I come, or every week I come and serve in children's ministry, the children disrespect me. <laughs> like, that shouldn't be our concern. As a faithful servant of Yahweh, our concern ought to be zeal for His glory over our comfort. But second, notice His zeal is for God's Word to be honored, not just for God's glory to be vindicated, but God's Word to be honored. The last two verses here, perhaps some of the most familiar ones. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So in these last two verses, we see the zeal of the true and faithful servant of God turned in on himself and his own heart in relation to the words of his master. No longer now looking out and comparing himself to, or comparing, or no longer looking out and evaluating his enemies, now it turns in to his own soul, and we find the zeal the same. Uh, both verses here uh, are parallel in their construction, both beginning with the conjunction, logically connecting what is said here back to verse 126. And the logic is this. Let me map it out for you. The more others disregard God's commandments, the more the godly man treasures them. Do you see that? He says, because they've broken your law, verse 126, therefore, I love your commandments. Because they've broken your law, therefore, I esteem right all your precepts. Isn't that an interesting logic of loyalty there? And so Spurgeon says, it is it is the mark of a true believer, listen, that he does not depend upon others for his religion, that it isn't as the tide of popularity for the Word of God 
ebbs and flows, so does my love for God's word. Look, that's not how it works. Not with the psalmist. He says, no, the more opposition there is to it, the more unpopular it is, actually, that strengthens my conviction. I'm going the other direction. I love that. Is that a you? Does your conviction about God's word grow stronger when the world around you comes against it and seeks to destroy it? Or are you tempted to buckle under the pressure of that? It is a mark of faithful servants, listen, to cling tighter to their master's words when obstacles arise. That's the whole point here. But but notice first, specifically, that the psalmist's Uh, The psalmist was zealous for God's Word to be honored as the highest treasure. Look at verse 127, as the highest treasure, honored as the highest treasure. Now, that sub-sub point's not on there, but I'm repeating it so you can get it. His zeal was that God's Word might be honored as the highest treasure. Um, Notice verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Now, gold, of course, is one of the, just like today, one of the most valuable commodities of the ancient world. And fine gold here was a reference to that gold which was even better. It was even more valuable and more rare because it had been put through this expensive and difficult purifying process that removed all the impurities and dross and made it more costly and rare. And the psalmist says, here the word of God is more precious to him than that. The most precious commodity of our day. And of course, this isn't a new teaching, Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 11 Solomon would write there, take my instruction and not silver. Listen, and of all people, Solomon, listen, like, right, would have, would have known what to value over riches, right? And so he says, look, take my instruction, not silver, speaking to his sons, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. It's that idea, Proverbs 16, 16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. You see, that was the psalmist's heart here. His zeal was to see the Word of God, the Scriptures valued above every other precious thing in this life. Is that the case for you, Christian? If you had one thing to to take away with you as your house is burning, would it be your Bible? Charles Bridges writes this, the image employed brings before us the picture of the miser. His heart and his treasure are in his gold. With what delight he counts it, with what watchfulness he keeps it, hiding it in safe custody lest he should be despoiled of that which is dearer to him than life. Oh, and such should Christians be, spiritual misers 
counting their treasure, which is above fine gold, and hiding it in their hearts, in safekeeping where the great despoiler shall not be able to reach it. Oh, Christians, how much more is your portion to you than the miser's treasure? Hide it, watch it, retain it. You need not be afraid of covetousness in spiritual things. Rather, covet earnestly to increase your store, and by living upon it and living in it, you will grow richer in extent and more precious in value. Is that how you see God's Word? Do you treasure it? Is it honored in your heart above all other things as the highest treasure? But not only that, second, notice verse 128, the psalmist was zealous for God's Word to be honored also as the highest rule and authority. Notice what he says here. Not just the highest treasure, but the highest rule and authority. Look at verse 128. He makes this point here in this last verse both positively and negatively. First, positively, he says, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. That's pretty comprehensive. Look, the verb, the verb here for esteem right is literally to make straight. It is the, in contrast to the crooked and deceptive path of those who've broken God's law. And so, John Phillips writes here, I think it's good uh, tr- progression in the psalmist from 127 to 128. Notice, he says, the previous statement put a monetary value on the Bible, gold. It is worth more than gold. This one puts a moral value on the Bible. It is always right. Do you believe that of the Scriptures? That in everything that it speaks to, it is always right. It is our highest rule and authority. That is what the psalmist has zeal for. This is the psalmist's way of doubling down on the fact that God's Word is always right, straight, and true, whatever it speaks to. Notice, unique and difficult phrase, all precepts, all your precepts concerning everything. It's literally all the precepts of all, all the precepts of everything. In other words, that refers to the totality of what God's Word seeks to address. Not one part of it is more right than another. It's all right in everything and every bit. God's Word, Christian, is not partially true. God's Word is not half authority, only authoritative about some things that it speaks to. It is universally and consistently and completely true about anything and everything that it addresses and seeks to address. And so one writer says, every command, however hard, every injunction, however distasteful, every precept, however severe, even cut off thy right hand, pluck out thy right eye, forget thine own people in thy father's house, take up thy cross daily, sell all that thou hast, yea, Lord, even so, all thy precepts concerning all things are right. They're right, Christian. Do you believe that? Because God's servant and His faithful slave, you must not pick and choose what He commands. 
You cannot. You can't sit as arbiter and decide over, I think that, that you know, those, those verses about homosexuality and sexuality in marriage, no, but love and forgiveness, yeah, that, that's, that's authoritative. All of it, Christian. Again, John Phillips, I can't resist reading this one. He says, when the Bible says something about creation, that settles it. The Bible's right. That the, the world bringing on its uh, paleoanthropologists and its origins researchers, if what they have to say contradicts what the Bible has to say, they are wrong and the Bible's right. Every issue to which the Bible speaks is right. Others may say that such a conviction makes us bigots. We say it makes us believers. That's how it's put positively, his zeal here for the Word of God as it's to be honored as the highest authority, but negatively, let's just end here, as if it wasn't clear enough, he says, I hate every false way. Look, it's the same point he's making here. If we're to be so zealous as to consider God to be right about everything, then this too must be our resolve as well. This is just the other side to the same coin. There's no room, listen, Christian, in the faithful servant's mind, if we're considering everything that God says as yes, then there's no room for entertaining any false way. Do we understand that? So, William Cowper warns this, look, if Satan get a grip of thee by any one sin, is it not enough to carry thee to damnation? And I love the picture here. As the butcher carries the beast to the slaughter, sometime bound by all the four feet and sometime by only one, so it is with Satan, though thou be not a slave to all sin, if thou be a slave to one sin, the grip he hath of thee by that one sinful affection is sufficient to captive thee. Christian, hate every false way. You must. You must, you must consider God right in everything that he says and then turn your back on everything that is false. Couldn't help but think of 2 Peter 2 verse 19, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. May we bow only to the Lord Jesus and to his word. Are you a faithful servant? Faithful servant of the Lord? This evening, in, in summary, a faithful servant of the Lord is zealous, and this last point is zealous for God's glory to be vindicated and for his word to be honored.